0: 3d6 down the line hey everyone welcome to 3d6 down the line my name is John this is part two of my Dolman wood deep dive taking a thorough look at all three of the books in the upcoming Dolman Wood tabletop role-playing game currently being funded on Kickstarter as of the taping of this video. If you haven't already, I highly suggest that you check out part one of this series where I detail the player's book. You can find the link to that video right here, and you can also find that in the description below as well. So we're gonna dive right in, but first a couple of words, first a disclaimer. I am not being sponsored by Necrotic Gnome, nor Exalted Funeral, and I'm certainly not being paid in any way, shape, or form. My views in this video are my own, and I will admit to having a very heavy bias in favor of the game because I have played many iterations of the game in the past few years, and I love it, and I'm going to express that love in this video. So just be fair warning, this is not a hard critique detailing the pros and cons. It's going to be all pros, basically. Second, and unlike my first video, which details the player's book. If you plan on being a player in an upcoming game of Dolman Wood, I highly recommend that you do not watch this video because it is going to spoil a lot of what makes Dolman Wood so unique and wondrous. Specifically, all of the unique take on the monsters we all know and love from our favorite fantasy games and all of the wondrous creatures that Gavin Norman has created for the game. Don't spoil yourself. Save it and wait. Go and tell your referee or your game master to watch this video instead, so they can take a look and understand what they're about to get. And as I explained in the first video, the perspective I'm bringing to this is from my years of experience working with the unfinished product up until this point and I plan on relating some of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight to my past campaigns. You can see my Dolman Wood campaign that I played with the my fellow members of 3D6DTL if you just head to the playlist where I have 22 episodes of that for you to enjoy and watch. You can find that right here and in the video description below. And lastly, before we dive in, I just want to make it clear that this is a work in progress. You're going to see an unfinished book that has a lot of blank pages, some notations that say to do or art inserted here. And uh, just be aware of that, that you are not going to see a completed work here. Okay, as you can see here, this is the front page of the monster book. This is the second book in the game, which includes the player's book, the monster book, and the campaign book. The monster book, which we are looking at tonight, has been walked through previously on YouTube by the great Chris McDowell, designer of Into the Odd and Electric Bastion Land. And you should definitely go check out his video as well for a different perspective. All right. So the cover image, um, as is with all the cover images of all the books, is by the great artist Ula Thinnell, and I'm sure that I'm mispronouncing that artist as well. So if you happen to know how to pronounce Ula's name, please let me know. Um, I admire their work very much. I think it gets across the spirit and vibe of Dolman Wood quite well. All right, let's pop in here. As you can see, this is a pre-release version. And here we have Ye old Table of Contents. Similar to the Player's Book and the Campaign Book, the Table of Contents is fully hyperlinked. Once again, displaying Gavin's focus on information design and ease of use at the table. So you can simply flip to the table of contents if you're using the PDF version, find the monster you're looking for in alphabetical order and click on it. So if we're looking for Devil Goat, I find it here. And instead of having to flip manually to page 32, I simply click it and voila, there we are right at Devil Goat. And we can see here that the book itself um, has a brief introduction where it's going to go over the the statistics and the stat blocks. Then it has the bestiary itself. And the bestiary appears to be approximately 87 beasts and 89 pages worth of beasts. And then the appendices are actually a large chunk of the book. They're actually 26 pages as well. And you can see here that they are divided into normal humans, Normal animals, um, and then some really fun charts in the back, which we will go over whenever we get to them. All right, let's go right in. And here we can see that all of the chapter headings, just like the player's book and the campaign book, were done by the wonderful artist Paulina Hananayemi, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing as well. This is part one, Monsters of Dolmenwood, which is the introductory section. And we have here the denizens of the deep, dank woods, the weird beasts, fickle fairies, and strange spirits that inhabit Dolmenwood. Here uh, in what's in this book, he explains that in part one, we're talking about, I was right, 87 weird, wondrous, and horrifying monsters. So he wants to make it very clear here the difference between what is in the bestiary part of the book, which is the main chunk of the book, and part two, the appendices, um, specifically in relation to the fact that the appendices contain normal animals. So you can see there are 48 mundane animals from familiar woodland creatures such as wolves and bears to unique dolmenwood wood fauna such as gobbles and gelatinous apes. I know many people were actually confused as why wouldn't you have a gelatinous ape, which is obviously a fantastical creature, not in the bestiary section, which is where all the weird, wondrous, and horrifying monsters are. Well, it's because they are twists or giant versions on normal animals where the bestiary is the purely weird and the purely wondrous. So going back to the bestiary, we have a Different types. Um, any of you familiar with the latter versions of Dungeons and Dragons would be familiar with some of these nom- with some of this nomenclature. We have con- constructs, demi- fae, dragons, fairies, humans and humanoids, monstrosities, plants, fungi, and oozes, and the undead. And most of these should be familiar to you. The only one that might need a little bit of explanation is demi Fae, which is actually important in the realm of Dolmenwood. They are the descendants of fairies, whose ancestors settled in the mortal world, and some still have sentience, and some have actually devolved into ravening beasts. It's important because some of the playable races actually in Dolmenwood are demi Fae, like the Woodgru and the Grimalkin are demi Fae, I believe. I don't think they're full fey. The elves, for instance, would be um, would be fairies. All right. And lastly of note here in the introduction is this little sidebar here in the lower right called Monsters and Factions. I find this very useful as well. Factions, as we're going to discover in the campaign deep dive, are very, very important to a Dolman Wood game. And it's very, very useful to kind of see at a glance the major factions and the monsters in this book that are tied in some way to those factions. So for instance, if we looked at uh, the Cold Prince, you can see that the Banshee, the Courtier Elf, and the Night Elf, and the Will are all associated with the Cold Prince in some way, shape, or manner, which is, I think is very, very useful. And here we have the explanation of the monster statistics for each one of the entries. You can see here, Gavin's mastery of layout and information design, everything that we need to know about the upcoming Monsters that you were about to see are all explained in a perfectly laid out two page spread where you can very easily parse the information that you need quickly. It includes a sample monster inset with numbers that correspond to the statistic that he is describing here. We will be looking at each one of these entries as we take a look at some of the monsters and I'll explain why I enjoy the layout so much and what he has actually added to each creature. Okay, so let's dive into the largest chunk of the book itself, which is The Best Jerry All the Weird and Wondrous Creatures of Dolmenwood. This is part two. We have another wonderful painting by Paulina depicting one of the Dolmenwood worms, which is Gavin's version of dragons. And you can see that Paulina paid attention to her art director because it is depicted correctly in that the Dolmenwood worms do not have limbs, they do not have wings. And judging by the color here, it looks like this is probably a yellow bile worm, which I'm sure we're going to find out. So as we move into this chapter, I'm certainly not going to be looking at all 87 of these monsters. That's just impossible. The video would be way too long and I would get way too tired. I have pre-selected a few that I wanted to take a look at. Um, for various reasons, and uh, I'll explain those when we get to them. But I will be flipping through every single page so that you can see the full breadth of what is being offered here so you can get a good look at all the artwork and all the cool creatures that are going to be around. And I'll probably be making some extemporaneous comments as I notice things or as things appeal to me or if there's a, some comment I'd like to make. So let's go into it here. All right, first up, we have the Antler Wraith and the Banshee. The Banshee is an example of a monster that we all sort of understand from other fantasy role-playing games that we've played. And because this is a complete game, Gavin has adapted many of these monsters that we know into this game, but given them a thoroughly Dolman Wood spin, so they're going to have very unique traits that actually meld them in well with the setting itself. The Barrel Bogey was thoroughly gone over by Chris McDowell, so it is a very fun creature, but you should definitely head over to Chris McDowell's video to go check that out. You can see here the Basilisk has yet to be filled in, but that is another creature, of course, that is common to fantasy games, but we're looking looking forward to seeing Gavin's take on it. Black Tentacles, the Bog Corpse, which looks to be like a Martian zombie of some sort, the Bog Salamander, and this brings us to our very first creature that i kind of want to focus on these guys are fantastic and gross and i love them the boggin so we'll use the boggin as sort of our baseline standard of how we're supposed to read a stat block all right so we'll go into what make what i like about the boggin as well but let's go piece by piece by piece and go through how gavin has laid this out and what the rules are for these for creatures in general in Dolmanwood. so first of all the name of the creature Then right below we have a description which is short and terse yet highly descriptive so that the referee can parse what kind of creature this is and then convey that information immediately to the players when they ask what they see. So we have here amphibious monstrosities that are 10 feet tall that lurk in pools, lakes, and mires. They have frog-like limbs and a huge matting of pondweed growing from the head concealing the grotesque face fantastic description. Even if we didn't have artwork, which we didn't have for quite some time, I would have a very clear mental image of what this creature looked like. We have a line here at the very top of the stat block that indicates its size, its type, its level of sentience or intelligence, and its alignment. So it's a large monstrosity with low intelligence, and it is chaotic. Then we move into the stat block proper. Each one of the major categories in the stat block is in bright red, so it's very easy to find what you're looking for. And first, right off the bat, is a change from what you might be used to from any editions of Dungeons & Dragons. So we have level. So we have level six. In the early classic versions of Dungeons & Dragons, this would have been known as hit dice, or the number of eight-sided dice that would be rolled to determine the monster's hit points. This is often a good way for early referees to determine the relative power level of a creature vis-a-vis the player characters. Gavin has done away with that, and he simply has called it level, which is exactly what you think it is. It is roughly equal to the Same power level of a character of that level. So the bongan is level 6, which means that it is roughly as powerful as a level 6 character. Now, of course, in the old school style, which this game firmly is, what the power level of a level 6 character varies wildly depending upon what kind of character you're playing, what kindred in class, and then even more so in the old school style about what kind of equipment you're carrying. You could be vastly overpowered if, if you were given or have found some really, really strong items or equipment. This is still a, a, a nice gauge to have just so you can kind of sum up if you think that this might be too powerful or too weak for a group of characters. Next up, we have Armor Class, which is exactly what you think it is. This game only uses Ascending Armor Class, unlike Old School Essentials, which uses descending armor class, but with the option to use a armor class. And this is firmly using the modern take on armor class, which is the higher it is, the more protected you are. This is the number that you are trying to beat on a d20. When you attack, if you roll this number or higher, you hit the creature. Then we have hit points. So here you can actually see that he's rolled in hit dice into this stat. So 6d8 is actually the number of hit dice that the creature has. He has six hit dice equivalent to its level. So you can either roll that or you can take the suggested value, which is usually the median average of 27. And then we have the saving throws. These are the five classic saving throws renamed for clarity by Gavin. Um, So we have D is for doom, R is for ray, H is for hold, B is for blast, and S is for spells. These equate exactly with the classic bx D&D saving throws and these are all um, followed by numbers which is the number that you were trying to hit on a d20 or higher in order to be successful on your saving throw then we have the attack routines which are separated by or if it has multiple so we have two groping hands that are plus five to hit and one d4 plus a grab or one muck rake which is also plus five to hit with a 1d12 damage we were gonna to have to look down below to see what the grab does its speed is 40 that is the number of feet that it can use and still attack in a round uh, swim is the same its morale is eight which is a number between 2 and 12 when conditions would trigger a morale check the referee would roll 2d6 and if the number rolled is the Morale rating or lower, the monster will stay in the fight. So, therefore, the higher the number is, the more doughty the monster is, the more likely it will tough it out and actually stay in combat. So, eight is actually pretty high. This monster will not run away or surrender easily. And lastly, we have experience points, which is the number of points that are awarded to the party as a whole for defeating or overcoming the monster. And then that number is divided by the number of characters in the encounter. In this case, it would be 520, which is not a small amount. And then we have the second part of the stat block. We have encounters. So this tells you how many are likely to be encountered. You may have seen this entry under a different name in other editions of D&D called number appearing, right? So we have here 1D6. Now the number here is indicated when you when you find the monsters wandering, as in not in their lair. That is the first number. So up to six that you could find when you roll on a random counter wandering. And then in parentheses, we actually have the percent chance that the random encounter is actually a creature's lair. And in which case, Gavin has recommended that you can actually multiply the number encountered by up to five if you find them in the lair. However, there is a relatively small percent chance that that is going to be the case, 25% here. So you would roll that. The moment that you actually roll the encounter on the random encounter chart, you would then roll to see, is it in lair? And there would be a 25% chance. Next, we have behavior, which is a great entry to have in every stat block. It allows the referee to understand the mentality of the creature and how the referee might go about role-playing the creature. Here we have cruel slavers, man-eaters. They're just highly descriptive, evocative words, nouns, adjectives that allow you to get a firm grasp in your head of how we're going to play this creature. You immediately know that they are slavers man eaters these are not good creatures right next we have speech so in most games we'll have languages right and they'll say like they know common and they know elven and that's pretty much it like there's no flavor to it at all here he not only gives you the languages that the creature knows here basic woldish and bogan and woldish being the common tongue in dolmenwood but also gives you a descriptive adjectives for what their speech sounds like, which is fantastic. So here he says that the Boggins have loon-like gibbering. I never would have thought of that, having read the description that that is what they sound like. But when you actually think of what a loon sounds like whenever they're speaking... It makes them all the more horrifying, right? He does this with every single beast in the book that has a full stat block. He also does it with many, many, I believe all of the MPC descriptions in the campaign book, which is great. Next, we have Possessions. So he divides the treasure that can be found on these creatures between two categories, possessions and hoard. So possessions would be something that is carried on the actual individual creature itself. And then hoard is what would be found in a lair. So here the Boggan has none. I know in other entries we'll see them when we go through it. It's usually like a, a smattering of coins or perhaps some trade goods on them or something like that. The hoard, he has actually come up with a new system for notating treasure Categories so C R and M stands for coin, riches, and magic. Coins is obviously pretty self-explanatory. Riches is a combination of gems, jewelry, and art objects, and then magic, of course, is anything magical in nature or or particularly rare. So here we have C three plus R three plus M three. There is a scale. I believe it's from one to twelve. We'll see in the back of the book, but you can uh, easily determine once you see that scale the amount of wealth that is possible here. So three is relatively low, um, but he does have all three types. And in addition, they have earths and ores, which are worth 1d10 times 100 GP. So that's not that's not bad at all, actually. Okay, and then we have a number of notes. Depending on the creature, this could be highly involved or just a smattering, but they, regardless of the entry, they are all clearly laid out. And they are all things that you're going to want to parse before you use the creature. So, first of all, he's amphibious. He can breathe air and water. Grab. This is associated with that attack, right? The two groping hands. Anyone hit by both of the hands in the same round is dragged beneath its reeking mane of weed. The victim is trapped and may not act, but may save versus hold, bolded, so it's easy to see, each round to escape. In the meantime, the Boggan will attempt to drag the victim to its underwater lair. Pretty darn horrifying. So that clarifies up at the top here under attacks that the two groping hands, that's two attacks at plus five, each attack doing 1d4 plus an attempt for a grab. So that's uh, pretty nasty. When the Boggan dies upon death, the flesh of a Boggan dissolves into sludge. Their true appearance beneath the matting of hair weed is a matter of some conjecture. This is great because it basically leaves it up to the referee to determine what happens because of the nature of boggans that they lurk in pools, lakes, and mires. When you kill one, it starts to turn into sludge. It's probably going to sink beneath the water where it can't be seen, right? But if a canny player discovers that no one knows what a bogan looks like underneath its matting of weed, perhaps they will do something in order to ensure that the corpse actually stays upon land so they can determine what it is. And then that's up to the referee to come up with an explanation for what that might be. Sludge Mine, so bogans Mine lake beds for Ores and Clay. This is just flavor. This just tells you a little bit about their ecology and their habitat. To me, this is a strong reminder of what I consider to be the greatest bestiary created for any version of Dungeons & Dragons, which was the second edition Monstrous Manual, which had a similar layout to this, where there was one page for each monster and went to an incredible amount of detail into habit, society, ecology, and as well combat. This is a lovely little entry like that. Very short and sweet, but gives you a clear picture. Prey on sentience. Boggins ply the water's edge in search of warm blooded sentients to drag down to their lair. Four and six captives are dismembered and consumed. The remainder are kept as slaves and put to work in the sludge mines. Really nasty. And speaking of nasty, we have amphibious vomit. So the putrid green vomit of a boggin when caked around the mouth and the nose of a land-dwelling humanoid, grants the ability to breathe underwater for one day. A boggin produces two doses of this substance per day. In this manner, they keep air-breathing creatures alive as slaves. And the dose of the vomit is worth 100 gold if bottled. Now, that that is the money entry right there. What we have here is a possible positive side effect of an encounter with a Boggan. These are littered throughout the bestiary, is instead of just being threats to life and limb, there could be a reason why you would actually want to engage with certain creatures, because all of you who are fans of the old school know Combat is usually seen as a fail state. It is a very, very dangerous undertaking. And you definitely want to stack the deck in your favor before you enter into combat. You need to have a good reason because there is very little XP reward compared to the rewards that you're going to be getting from finding treasure. So what motivation do you have to actually risk life and limb by encountering this creature? Well, you have this Amphibious Vomit. Now, how would you ever know that that would be the case? Well, this is the seeds for adventure, right? Maybe the party does a favor for a sage and as a reward. The sage actually reveals information about the bogans, tells stories about what the vomit can do, and provides information upon what hexes can, boggins can be found in. So the party travels to the hex, probably having adventures, encounters the bogans, free some of the slaves perhaps. And then harvest the vomit from the boggin. And lo and behold, they have something that grants them the ability to breathe underwater for one day. Instead of trying to wait to get the water breathing spell, if that's even available, or find a potion of water breathing. They can actually find it naturally occurring in the world itself, which is just wonderful. It gives you a reason to go out and adventure into the world, right? As well, a dose of the vomit is actually worth money. That's reason enough sometimes, right? So entries like that is really, really Creative design. These are not just killing creatures. There could be reasons for interacting with them. Down at the bottom, we have a series of tables. Some of them are common for every single monster, and some of them are unique. These tables make this book. Make no mistake. You should pay attention to all of these. This is such a boon for the referee when they are running the game at the table. I cannot even begin to describe, oh, Although I'm going to try right now, actually. So let's look at each one of these charts one by one. First of all, we have traits. You can either roll randomly or you can pick one that seems interesting. Each one of these six will give you a unique version of the creature listed. So not all Boggins are simply 10 foot tall monstrosities with matting and pondweed and all that kind of good stuff. You can make each one different by saying... That one has dead tree branches arranged around it like antlers. Another is exhibiting a sickening, roddening stench wafting of, off of it. Another one has rows of pendulous teats. Fantastic. I love the fact, too, that the artist here, and I am apologize, I'm not really sure who the artist is. It's a fantastic painting. But I love that of all the six possible traits that could be existed by the boggin, that artist decided to go with the pendulous teats. Well done. But this is wonderful, right? So this can give you unique versions of each one of these creatures. So every time they encounter a bogging it can be slightly different. And you don't have to, as a referee, come up with it on the fly. You can simply refer to the table very, very quickly and pick one. Even more useful, encounters. Here We have here a D4 table. Once again, you can choose one that appeals to you or you can roll randomly. This is so useful. I cannot tell you the amount of times in past games where... I thought I was being a good referee and I was rolling for random encounters at the correct time and lo and behold, you hit the magic number that says a random encounter occurs. You roll on the table, you discover that what monster it's going to be. You've set up the distance and all that kind of good stuff and then it just ends up being, all right, so you're wandering through the forest and about 50 yards away, you see something coming towards you and it's a group of orcs or something like that. But you have... You have to really think, you have to take the extra step to figure out, well, what is the orc's motivation? Why are they moving through the force? What exactly is their disposition? I have to roll a reaction check and all that kind of good stuff. Here, they're almost like mini-adventures that sets the monster in an environment where they are interacting with the world itself and presents a dilemma for the player characters that might not necessarily lead to hostility immediately. So check these out. Let's take a look. For the Boggan, we have emerging from a pool to chase 1d3 humans. They are naked slaves covered in pondweed, and fleeing captivity. This is great because it's a call to action for the player characters, right? These are obviously people who are distraught. They are going to be out of their wits as they're fleeing captivity. And the boggins are rising out, 1d6 of them, um, to come and retake their slaves back into captivity. You can see here that... Any of the bolded words often refer to another stat block in the book as well. I would assume that these will also be hyperlinked. They are not currently, but I would find that to be very, very helpful as well. Uh, Number two on the table, lurking in a muddy pool, only the tops of their heads protruding. A droon cottager perches in a willow tree and promises payment in the form of human slaves in return for six barrels of husk sludge, that being the amphibious vomit. So there we have an interesting twist where there's another possible adversary actually in the scene, a Droom Cottager. But look at all the opportunity that, that player characters would have here. This is an encounter where the player characters have stumbled upon something that doesn't involve them. In fact, one or both of the parties involved might take offense to the fact that the party that the party stumbled in. So what do they do? Do they attempt to bargain with one side or the other? If it's the droon or the secretive cult of arcane hoarders that usually dwell in the western part of the Dolman Wood, the party might see that as a potential source of information or secrets. So maybe they want to talk to the cottager, right? This puts a whole new spin on the Boggan entry. Sneaking through a bed of reeds, approaching a group of 3-4 D anglers who sit around a fire. Fishermen drinking and singing merrily, unaware of the impending danger. Another call to action for the player characters. Possible rewards for saving those fishermen? And lastly, we have the Boggins are dragging themselves from a muddy pool, which is dried up or frozen, moaning plaintively. The monsters will not live long out of water. So this appeals to the party's sense of morality. These are obviously not good creatures, but they are obviously dying. Do they walk away? Do they put them out of their misery? Do they help them? So not every encounter has to lead towards Bloodshed. Each one of these suggested encounters provides a dilemma, a choice for the player characters. This is so essential to old school's play. Player agency. And then the last chart we have here is layers. So if when rolling the random encounter that ends up being a boggin, you have rolled 25% or under, which determines that you have actually stumbled upon a boggin layer, which means up to, let's see, 30 of these boggins possibly. What does that lair look like? Usually in past editions of D&D, it just said lair, and you had to figure out what that meant. Here, Gavin provides four different examples of what a lair might look like for each one of these 87 beasts. Here we have an ancient well shaft submerged in a pond. An old woman is kept bound in weeds at the bottom of the well. She spends her days blindly tunneling, terrifying, Another call to action. An underwater dome of mud and woven branches. Swimming human slaves. Ten colonies of rare fish and mollusks. The Bogans serve a supra-intelligent octopus. That's an entire adventure right there. It's literally an entire adventure. (laughs) A maze of subaquatic caves in the bedrock of a lake. Human slaves support an organized mining operation tied to a network of unscrupulous traders on the surface. Once again, the scenario for an entire mini quest, right? A cavern in the side of a pool. The Boggins live peacefully, preying only on fish led by a lambent orb which speaks of philosophy and the stars. So this is sort of a left field entry, right? This is completely against what we've already learned about the boggan and shows that that not all Boggins are the same. As you can't pinhole all of these creatures into one large homogenous group. So that gives you an idea of how Gavin is presenting each one of these wondrous beasts. He gives you so many options for making them unique each time that you encounter them and providing the referee a plethora of tools to engage the player characters and the creatures when the encounter begins in depth in the world, which only deepens the immersion and provides numerous jumping off points for even more adventure and player agency. It's fantastic. There's the bargain for you. Let's keep moving on, shall we? We'll move through some of these things a little bit faster. Now we have the brain conk. There are a number of awesome fungi and ooze-related monsters in Domo because they play such a huge role in the forest itself. Bramblings, which are thorny, woody servants of the drune, um, the Bregel. So we went over the Bregel in the player's book. They are a playable kindred. In the player's book, but for each one of the playable kindred, including humans, they do have a bestiary entry so that you can see the typical version of the playable kindred. So you can see here a Longhorn Bregel, which is a noble Bregel, is level five. Now, obviously, if you're playing a Bregel, you're going to range in level, of course, but your typical Bregel Longhorn is going to be around that power level, around level five. And you can see here that we have a unique table For the Longhorn Briggle, Noble House Affiliation, which you could roll or you could just determine. The Bestial Centaur and the Sylvan Centaur. And the Cobbin. We're going to stop here at the Cobbin. These are fantastic. Uh, Let's let's read the description real quick. Talking humanoid animals about two to three feet tall who build cottages, drink tea, and smoke pipes just as other sentient folk. They dwell in the Valley of Wise Beasts. Here's the key. Under the cruel yoke of the Crookhorns. So judging by the, the description here, you can probably see that the obvious influence here is are children's fairy tales, like Wind in the Willows, for instance, where you have anthropomorphic animals. Who doesn't love anthropomorphic animals these days, right? But the Cobbins, I find to be the perfect personification of the Dolman Wood vibe. On the one hand, you have the fairy tale whimsy and the tongue-in-cheek humor. But on the other hand, you have the dark side of fairy tales and the dread and the horror, oftentimes leading into body horror almost, right? So on the one hand, we have the cute and whimsical anthropomorphic talking animals that dress and talk just like we do. However, they are actually living under tyrannical rule of the most evil force within the wood, which is the Naglord Atanaway and his Crookhorn legions. So why don't we pop over to the map at this point real quick. And if you are a player at this point, You need to look away. I am not joking. This is the referee's map, and you should not lay eyes on this. You will be spoiling yourself for the worse. So if we look here, the Valley of the Wise Beasts, which is where the Cobbins reside, is between the River Shub and the River Shiver. Cobden on the Shiver is one of the 16 settlements of Dolmanwood that is fully detailed, and that is a Cobbin settlement. It is currently under the thrall of the Naglord Atanaway, which rules from his obscene throne in the Fallen Sarg Stone right here. So just the fact that he places them under this tyrannical rule puts a whole new spin on this typical archetype of the cute anthropomorphic animal. So going into detail in the stat block here, you can see that they're, they're a low level, level one. They don't have a very high morale. You're not going to need an XP for for killing them, because you're not really supposed to, right? But they do give you these lovely little role-playing prompts here, their behavior, shrewd, cautious, merry. Their speech, they speak woldish and gaff. They speak with rustic squeaks and croaks. Adorable, right? And in the notes, they give you a few notes about possible weapons. Not really important, obviously. But here, origins. cobbins were created by a away, who wished for adoring worshipers and decided to awaken sentience in the animals of the Valley of Wise Beasts. Awful, right? twisted, corrupt versions of animals. It's a horrible, horrible backstory. Outside the valley, cobbins are encountered rarely, apparently, as escapees from the tyrannical rule of the Crookhorns. Example layers and encounters listed here are best suited for encounters taking place in wider Dolmenwood outside the Valley of the Wise Beasts. That's good to know because you obviously can't be expected to only be playing in the Valley of the Wise Beasts. So in the wider area of Dolmenwood, this is what you would be looking at for the charts whenever you encounter a cobbin. A unique chart here right away, we have the species that you might encounter. This is really great because if I rolled a random encounter for a cobbin, I would have a tough time just sputtering out a cute animal right off the top of my head, much less more than one, right? So you can actually just roll on a D12 chart right here and come up with a whole variety of cute Wind of the Willows esque animals like moles and mice and squirrels and weasels, right? Traits smoking a long pipe, hat keeps slipping down over their eyes, aw, whistles and sings little ditties between sentences, with your basket on the back, laden with straw and kindling. Thick wooly jumper with far too long arms. All cute and adorable, right? And then the last one, six. An iron collar around the neck. Placed by crookhorns. Nasty. Encounters. Quivering behind a great stump. Hiding from 2d4 crookhorns who are yelling, You will not be punished if you turn yourselves in now while quietly chuckling. An encounter right there is more than just obviously a cobb. you've suddenly introduced up to possibly eight crookhorns, who are no joke in a fight, picking through the ruins of a church and graveyard, irreverently tossing around broken holy symbols. How does the friar and cleric in the party react to such behavior? Do they view that as cute? Up to the players to decide. Picnicking in the Glade, checked blanket laden with cheeses, pasties, pickled eggs, and lashings of ginger beer. This is a great one. I like this one because there is no built-in dilemma. There is no prospect of violence at all. This is a chance to introduce what Gavin calls the homely hearth, a little break in the adventure just to enjoy the victuals that are on offer. And as I explained in the player's book, there is so many available in Dome that are all fully detailed. Just take a little time and enjoy that stuff, right? It's fantastic. Lastly, sitting exhausted beside a stream, cleaning wounds acquired while escaping Crookhorn custody. Without proper care or healing magic, the wounds will soon prove fatal. A call to action. Not only would you probably be keen to help and heal these cobbins, but you would probably want to find out who did this to them and probably hunt them down and wreak revenge for their sake, right? An adventure seed once again. Their lairs, a ramshackle hideout in the ruins of an old barn shared with a colony of 3D4 lurkies don't know what lurkies are, but they're obviously not just turkeys. A splendidly constructed, adeptly concealed treehouse in the branches of an old oak. A little rope ladder can be spied, dangling in between branches. Once again, these are layers that are more likely to be found in the wider dolmen. This is not indicative of how they live in the Valley of the Wise Beasts, where they actually live like genteel, civilized folk. Similar, uh, In my head, I kind of picture them as like hobbits in the Shire. This is how they would live when they're outside their homeland. Uh, a miniature thatched cottage in a glade of foxgloves. A hand-painted sign reads Hobble's Tea Rooms. A mogelwomp has taken up residence in the cottage, expelling the cobbins to huddle in a leaky barn at the rear. Call to action here as well. The mogelwomp is a a feline fae that actually uh, wants to be invited into a house and have tea. And when it does so, it actually grows larger and larger until it, it eats and expels whoever lives there. And it just keeps growing large in the house. It's a wonderful house and Wonderland-esque sort of creature, which we will see in the coming through here. A semi-permanent camp inside the hollow, a fallen trunk of a great tree. The insides of the trunk are lined with soft moss and hung with cooking pots. Oh, that's nice. Sweet as well. So that was the cobbin, and I thought that that is a good example of showing the wild variety and spectrum of creatures that you can find in Dolman Wood. Moving on, we have the cockroaches, which is unfinished. And then we have the crookhorn, and we're going to stop right here because I love the crookhorns. I use them in 3D6 Down the Lines online campaign with my friends. You can go and see it. I can't remember the exact episode where they show up, but it's in one of the later episodes. These are the guys that you just love to hate there's nothing good about them they are totally and wholly corrupt and they can be found in almost every part of the wood although they are native to the court of the nag lord which is near the north these are the guys that are actually ruling over the cobbins as we just described they are seven foot tall feral disease ridden breggles that's The important part here is that they are actually goat folk that have been corrupted by the Naglord, twisted by the chaotic influence of their master, Atanaway. They roam northern Dolmenwood as pillagers, brigands, and burners of villages. They are not nice people. When they attack, they can choose to attack twice, once with a bite, once with a butt. Each one of those attacks has a chance to inflict disease as well as damage, or they can choose to use a weapon. When you encounter them, wandering there is 1d12 of them that is not nice at all it is not a bell curve of a roll it is linear but just a chance that you could actually encounter 12 of them uh, would send most parties running and there's 25 percent chance that you're going to find them in a lair which we'll go over just a minute they are brutish wild merciless that tells you so much as a referee about how you're going to use these guys they have a relatively high morale at eight although it's not that high so there are cowards amongst them but when they obviously when the way I would play this, if I saw morale eight and I saw behavior as merciless and brutish, I would think to myself when these guys have the upper hand, they are never going to stop. They speak gaff and basic Woldish, but they have obscenity laced bleating, which is so evocative. I love that. I immediately want to play these creatures just so I can swear a lot. And possessions, here we see actual uh, something filled in the possessions roll. So we have 3d6 silver pieces, which is what each one of them may have on them. And then if you find them in a lair, there's a chance of finding some coin, some riches, and a slight chance of magic. They favor clubs and spears. Their armor. They wear a rough patchwork of spiked leather and chain. And without armor, they have an AC of 11. Disease, this is the real nasty one. So anyone who comes into close contact with a Crocorn, including being bitten or butted by one, must save versus doom or be afflicted by a nasty infection. See the Crookhorn Diseases. And then it pulls you down to the unique table for the Crookhorn entry, which is Crookhorn Diseases. And then, lastly, Marauders. They delight in the capture, torture, debasement, and inevitably roasting of other sentients. Fantastic flavor right there. Love it. There's no mechanical value to that, but it paints a picture and gives it immediately fires the referee's mind about how you're going to use these creatures, right? All right. Let's look at those diseases. Get ready. Buckle up. They are not nice if you're a little bit squeamish. All right. Eye leprosy. In the first week, one eye clouds over. In the second week, it blackens, now completely blind. After three weeks, it turns to ooze. Gross. Goat rabies. The dreaded goat froth. Victims lose one point of wisdom or intelligence at random. Each day, if either score is reduced to 2, the victim starts frothing at the mouth and becomes violently insane. I love it. I love it so much. It's so good. Mange. Infuriatingly itchy parasites which burrow under the skin, causing hair to drop out. And then lastly, pubic lice. Yes, I also read it as public lice first, and then I realized, nope, he wrote pubic lice. A highly embarrassing infestation of horrid, itchy crabs better not to ask how a crookhorn's bite can transmit crabs. Gross. Not necessary, but love it. It's just so good. So you can see here that it's a really dark, awful, body horror sort of stuff. There is a little infusion of humor to lighten things up a little bit, which I really, really like. And it just makes you smile when reading it. Smile in a nasty way if you're a referee. Traits, blind in one eye, milky, white, and oozing. We can see that depicted in the picture. Patchy fur and flaking gray skin, also depicted in the picture. One horn snapped off. Looks like the artist decided to skip that one. Bright orange, red, or purple fur maybe natural or dyed. They're punk, man. They're punk. Speaks with a sinister lisp, giggling maniacally. And bellows, gurgles, and rolls eyes madly. These are just great great role playing prompts for the referee encounters so this is how you might actually come across so this is these being sort of the typical orcs of the setting right the 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 nasty evil humanoids of the setting it could be very easy to make these boring every time you roll them on a random encounter chart like ugh Great, another six crookhorns come stomping through the forest, right? Great, can we move on, please, right? No, with these encounters, you're going to have a unique experience every single time. Capering around a roaring bonfire, preparing to roast 1d4 mosslings, delirious and smeared with hog grease. If you are fans of 3d6 down the line, and you remember the episode where the player characters encountered the crookhorns, this was what I rolled on the random encounter and I used this and it was in my mind a fantastic session mostly because of the ingenuity of the player characters and the way that they got through that whole encounter but also in the rippling consequences of the fallout of that encounter as it applied to the campaign as a whole all generated by a simple by two simple random encounter roles the encounter role that determined that it was a crookhorn And the encounter, and then the subsequent role that determined what the nature of the encounter was, all provided by Gavin. Receiving orders from a harpy, angered at the crookhorn's incompetence and losing an important prisoner. Do, Do the player characters step in? Probably stupid. I'll give you the answer to that one right now. Charging after a unicorn carrying flaming brands and a wickedly spiked iron bridle and bit. They're going to enslave and probably harm this unicorn. If that's not a call to action, I don't know what is, because who knows what kind of rewards the unicorn would give a player character party for saving it from a band of crookhorns. And lastly, prancing around to abominable pipe music, bearing a six-foot-tall, velvety, three-horned unicorn upon a throne, utterly inebriated, which applies a minus two to their attack rolls and saving throws. Good stuff. Layers. where are you going to find these guys whenever you roll 25% in Lair? Which, by the way, would yield possibly up to 60 Crookhorns. A makeshift camp of greasy tarpaulins and hammocks. Freshly killed gain animals and skins hang from trees. Maybe a chance for an ambush for the player characters. The cellars of a mossy ruin, stuffed with rotting furnishings. A druun cottager is held prisoner in the dark. I like that one a lot. Anytime the druun are introduced as sort of like a... Uh, side additive to an existing entry i love that because they the droon are so mysterious it just immediately injects a uh, another layer of danger and possibility and potential into an encounter so this is a cottager that is held prisoner what happens when you save a drone from a certain death an interesting question to ask your player characters a homely cottage whose former human inhabitants were recently dispatched. The Crookhorns are a rebel band planning to abscond from their overlord, Atanaway. This is a great dilemma. There's no doubt that they actually committed the violence against the family and off them. Yet, they are attempting to actually break away from Atanaway. What is their motive? What was it about Atanaway that they decided, we've had enough? Do you even entertain listening to them after what they've done to this family? A marquee in a freshly burnt clearing. Inside, the Crookhorns cavort, blast crude trumpets, and torment prisoners for the delight of an audience of 2D6 harpies. That just sounds like a nightmare fuel to me. I don't know if I would get involved in that at all. That's when I would say, walk away, move along. All right, so those are the Crookhorns. These are your baseline standard evil humanoids. But look how much flavor has been injected in a simple one-page spread using four tables that's it you have a single page spread and you have a full picture in your head of how you can use these at the table instantly moving on we have the crystalloid i don't have any idea what these things are but it looks like you could probably homebrew these right into gavin's old school essentials module incandescent grottos. that's for sure the diorlings, which are sort of deer people the Devil Goat, which are used by Bregel nobles, I believe. And we move into the Droon. I'm going to stop at one of these, the most common kind. So, first up, we have the Odroon, which are the elite members of the Brotherhood. There are 13 of them. They're all unique, each have individual names, as you can see in the chart here. And they are assigned to guard nominally the Summer Stones and Nodal Stones. Um, which are foci of intense arcane power in Dolmanwood. and we'll go through that in more detail whenever we go through the campaign book. The Braithmaid and the Cottager and the Drune Wife rounds out the Drune entries, but I want to focus on the Cottager, which is the typical member of the Brotherhood. So, moody, black cloaked members of the Occult Brotherhood who wander the deeps of Dolmanwood, recording omens and seeking occult power. You can see it down here at the bottom. It also says, see also Drune faction in the DCB. I assume that there'll probably be a page number once those page numbers have been finalized. DCB stands for the campaign book. So the Druin are also a faction as well, which are fully detailed out in the campaign book. You're not getting the entire picture of the Droon just from these monster entries. You should also refer to as a referee to the campaign book to get a uh, more further detail on how the faction actually is inserted into the wood itself and how player characters can interact with them. But uh, let's look into the stat block here. Interestingly enough, they do have a nefarious reputation by the common pious citizens of Dolman Wood, but you can see here that they can be any alignment. Gavin chose not to call them neutral which he easily could have, but he said, any alignment. So that tells you something right off the bat right there. You can see that they all carry a Staff of Green Flame, which is a plus 3 to attack and does some damage, plus some burning. Or they can cast a spell, or they can inscribe a sigil, which is really, really cool. So very, very arcane-based. Have a pretty high morale. You're not going to scare these guys away, especially if you're trying to hoard an arcane secret from them or they're attempting to gain an arcane secret. You're going to find one to four of them, So they are relatively solitary or travel in very small groups and only 20% chance that you're going to find them in a lair, their behavior. Once again, these are these triggers for the referee to immediately be able to grasp how to role play these guys out. Penetrating, self-serving, manipulative. They speak in abstruse tones, doom laden. Love it. And they speak Drunic, which is their own secret language. They has some good stuff on them. So they got some gold pieces, probably a golden torque worth 150 gold right there, and some trade goods. You're gonna love the trade goods when we get to that in the back in the appendices. No hordes in the lairs. They keep that they keep the good stuff very, very well hidden. That's their whole modus operandi. They have dark sight. They can see normally in darkness up to thirty feet. Interesting in itself. These are humans. They are not of the same ethnicity as most of the humans in Dolmenwood, they come from far to the north in a much earlier time. So, is their dark sight a result of magical experimentation, or is it just something natural that evolved from that ethnicity from the north? Burning green flame. So, a victim damaged by a cadreja staff has to save or be wreathed in snaking flame, suffering damage for a number of rounds, and can only be extinguished if the victim immerses themselves in water. The spells that they have, they have the following arcane spells memorized ingratiate vapors of dream dwemer light and paralyzation those are all new spells described in the player's book as we went through in the earlier video and then uniquely they can do a sigil once a week a cottager may weave a mystic sigil of green flame in the air and weaving a sigil is treated as casting a spell and may be disrupted in combat. You can see in the artwork right here that this gentleman is actually inscribing a sigil in the air, and we are referred down to the unique chart for the Druun. They have an entourage. There is a 2 in 6 chance. It's a 33% chance of being accompanied by 1d4 bramblings. Those are those wooden servants, or 1d4 charmed villagers who are just normal humans. And their lair, they typically live in a Druun family with a Druun wife. 1d8 minus 1 children, and 1d3 of those may be Braithmates, which you can see on the opposing page here. All right, so let's look at these druid sigils. Fear, the witness must save versus spell or flee for one turn. Summoning, where they can summon bramblings, or they can actually topple a dolmen. This is crazy. A standing stone within 60 feet topples, and all within 5 feet must save or suffer a bunch of damage. That, of course, would only be used if you were actually at a standing stone, which is Quite likely when it comes to encountering drone, actually. Their traits they are emaciated and addled by mushroom brew. They have a necklace of owl skulls. One might have a crown of antlers. Very cool. One might wear a featureless clay mask. One has uh, grizzled plates that cascade from its hood. And one might be skin covered with occult markings. Are they tattoos? Are they paint? In my campaign, they've encountered one or two of the Druin. The most memorable probably was in my adaptation, my Dolmanwood adaptation of the module The Incandescent Grottoes, which I placed near Fog Lake in Dolman, which I think a lot of people have done as well. There is a throwaway random encounter in that module where it says that a necromancer is it has entered into the Incandescent Grottos with a entourage as well, looking for secrets in the Incandescent Grottos. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting random encounter, especially since it's not tied in any way, shape, or form to the rest of the module. And I thought, well, what would be the perfect substitution, Dolman Wood substitution for that? And naturally, of course, it would be a drune with his entourage as described here. And so I did so. And I just, what I did is I used this stat block, because I felt that it would just probably be your average cottager who had a specific motivation. But I just kind of wanted to make him unique. So what I did, I did is I went into the campaign book. A little sneak peek at the campaign book real quick. I went over to the drune section here where they have a whole chart with drune names. And I rolled randomly when I was preparing the adventure. And I came up with Hecater for the male name and Unlight for the surname. And I was like, that is the most metal name ever. And I kept it, and I love it, and I used it. So Hecater Unlight was a purely result of a random roll, and I adapted the Droom Cottager stat block for that random encounter. And shenanigans were the result in both my 3D6DTL campaign, which you can watch, and in my in-person open game at my friendly local game store. Vastly different results from both of those encounters, um, but very, very fun in both. So the encounters that you can have with these guys, they're commanding 1d4 charm lackeys who drag a 10-foot-high humanoid wicker cage upon a cart. You gotta love it. Summoning 2d4 bramblings from the undergrowth to protect a rune-etched stone in a glade. That the stone bears encoded directions to an emerging ley line. This is what's so great about their druid is their association with the deep arcane secrets of Dolmenwood, and they are a one-way path to getting to the real dark secrets of the wood. I recommend that if you're planning on refereeing a game of Dolman Wood in the future, that you early on in the campaign drop rumors or actually have an encounter with the drone that informs the player characters that the drone are the source of the deepest and darkest and most valuable secrets of Dolman because there's a lot that is there to unearth that they may never encounter if they don't interact some way with the drune. You want to plant that seed early so that it gives the players the reason to want to go out and find them and interact with them and steal or bargain for their secrets. It will immediately provide a sense of conflict with one of the powerful factions because the Druun did not like to give up secrets. It'll make the players think of interesting and clever ways to extract those secrets. And then, of course, the end result is yielding up those secrets so you can show through the player's agency the whole breadth of what Domawood has to offer. Moving on with encounters, number three here, we have sitting upon a boulder, deep in contemplation, surrounded by spiraling ravens. The raven's cawing is vaguely coherent as if the cacophony conceals words. That is such a metal album cover, I love it. Lastly, in battle with a knight and 2d4 men-at-arms, all level 1 fighters, in the service of the duke. The cottagers are charged with kidnapping locals for use in dark rituals and are attempting to flee. The PC's going to step call to action once again. Are the PCs going to step in and try to get to the bottom of this, or they're going to immediately side with the knight and the men at arms as civilized people who are acting righteously against these dark occultists? The layers in which you can find them, these are great, a thatched cottage beside a brook in a pastoral glade. The cottager spends his days studying the rune carved granite skulls littered throughout the surrounding woods. Nothing hostile about that at all. A tumble-down shack beside a flint cliff. The cottager maps the movements of the moon and planets from a hidden lookout tower atop the cliff. Dark and mysterious, I love it. The whole notion of watching the stars, the ast- astrological element of the drune. Poorly renovated ruin beside a monolith of fathomless obsidian, which imprisons any who gaze into its depths. The cottager knows the secret of releasing those trapped. An adventure seed right there. All worked out for you. A dilapidated cottage beside a waterfall. The cottager is dying and is racked with regret at the deeds of his life. He may rashly reveal secrets of the Druun to strangers. You might as well just put a picture of a carrot right on top of that entry right there because that's all a player characters are going to need to hear. Amazing, amazing stuff. So that is the Druun cottager, an example of your typical Druun that you may encounter. And I love them. I think the drune are one of the most unique additions to Dolman Wood. And you should use them liberally. They are amazing. And moving on to the Elf Entry. Once again, Elves are much more of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell variety. Where they are alien and dangerous and fey and capricious. And should not be trucked with lightly. The Elf Knight and the Elf Wanderer. Fairy horses associated with fairy. The Galasher. The Gargoyle, which is a completed entry. I believe this is actually available to everyone out there if you go and check out the free 76-page preview of the Dolman Wood game. I think the Gargoyle is actually one of the stat blocks that is available to look at. And this is a great example of how a classic monster was adapted to with a Dolman Wood flavor. The Gelatinous Hulk. The Ghoul looking forward to seeing how he puts a dolmanwood spin on that and we're stopping right here folks you know it you love it the gloam if any unique dolmanwood creature has probably achieved some level of fame from the various earliest iterations of the dolmanwood setting it's probably this guy the gloam heavily associated with the Lady Haramore and the Abbey of St. Cluid for reasons which I will leave unmentioned. However, if you would like to see one possible way in which the gloam manifests and how a party handles it, you can watch the very earliest episodes of my Dolman Wood campaign on 3D6 Down the Line. Gloams are undead. They are shadow-wreathed and composed of the corpses of crow-like birds. They appear either as a flock of ragged birds or or, as a gaunt man formed of the feathers, bones, and beaks of the flock. Highly unique, utterly terrifying. Even more terrifying because here we have one of the darker elements of fairy tale exhibited the threat of harm to children. It's level seven. It is really nasty. My players can vouch for it. Two claw attacks, both at plus six with 1d8 damage plus disease. That is also not good. Or, One flock. We'll find out what that actually means. Plus six with 1d4 plus a chance for disease. It can fly at a movement rate of 60. That's very fast. It has a high morale and it has a whopping 1,080 experience points. For random encounters, there is no roll. There's only one. 20% in lair Behavior. Cunning. Obsessive. And amoral. That's probably the most disturbing descriptor right there. Amoral. Speech. A cawing rasp plus the Tongue of Crows. doesn't have any possessions on it. However, if you find it in Lair or find its Lair, you're going to find a decent amount of coin, small amount of gems, very powerful magic, and probably its collection. That immediately makes me want to look down below to find out what that means. And then the Flock Attack, which is, one of the unique ones. makes an attack roll against one target per five hit points the gloam currently possesses rounded up in a 20-foot area. So if we take the suggested amount of hit points here, 32, that means that it could, with a single attack roll, attack six targets in a 20-foot area with a single attack roll. And then a success would mean that the victim would suffer 1d4 plus a chance of disease. Let's look at disease before we go back. Disease, you save versus doom or contract a magical disease of blackening flesh leading to death after 1d6 weeks. I know that if any of my players are watching this, they are having very fond remembrances of times past upon reading that entry right there. They can change between forms, which takes one round, and... They can charm children. Here's where the threat to children comes And Mortal children encountering a gloom must f- save versus spell or trust the monster, viewing it as a beloved parent or mentor despite its sinister appearance. Nasty stuff. It usually has an entourage of charm children, and it has a collection. Each This is what makes a gloom a gloom. Each gloom obsessively collects a specific kind of macabre object. Its unique table is a collection table. You can roll on this and discover what it is. Condemned murderers is what its collection is. <laughs> nasty. Children's corpses, even more nasty. Dried human corneas, mummified animals, the teeth of the devout, and tokens of love. If you know the famous gloam from Dolman lore, you know which of these was its collection. So, traits. It's dressed in finery. The garments fly with the flock whenever it transforms. It smolders when exposed to light, hovers ominously a few inches above the ground, blood drips incessantly from its eyes, bleached white bones with small clumps of feathers, and the shadow of it moves independently, expressing emotions. And those are all traits that can be exhibited by different gloams. Not all gloams might Exhibit all of these. Each encounter with a gloam could be different. The encounters that you could have with them? Offering bright candy canes to two wide-eyed children who are gathering kindling. Dastardly. 2D4 children are releasing a raggedy man from an iron cage in a tree. The gloam roosts in the tree in flock form, overseeing the proceedings with almost word-like cause. The smoking remains of an old barn in an isolated wood, freshly raised. A gloam sits nearby, weeping at the ruination of its home and precious items. Do you take pity on this undead creature? Inspecting the wares of a peddler, taking a special interest in the collection of stuffed animals. And the different layers they could have. The ruins of an old watchtower. At dawn and dusk, the gloam serenades a maiden who lives nearby. Sounds just like a fairy tale. A cluster of twisted pines. The Gloam's presence inspires bloodthirsty behavior and local songbirds. An old wayside inn. The Gloam layers in the attic with its collection the skeletons of adulterers. The inn's proprietor, an aging woman whose former husband is part of the Gloam's collection, provides the Gloam with a source of victims in exchange for protection. That is so good. What a prompt. I can... Almost see this spark of an idea form in Gavin's mind. And then him just laughing to himself as he wrote out this entry. An amazing, amazing lair. And then lastly, a creepy manor. The former residence of a necromancer. The Gloam schools 2D6 children in the black arts. Very, very dark stuff. And a uh, very powerful, very nasty creature. Goblin. So these are creatures of fairy. And they are very, very unique in Dolmenwood, Wood. And uh, they are oftentimes merchants and they have lots of fun ways to interact with them so uh, if your player characters do not shy away from an encounter with goblins it's probably going to be a good time griffins the grimalkin which we saw in the player's book harpies which is another classic monster the harridan which is an ogre witch that serves the nag lord the headless rider i actually rolled this on a random encounter check for my in-person group and I didn't have this entry, unfortunately, where I could pull off these amazing encounters and traits, Um, but luckily the party decided to just let it pass on the road and didn't interact with it, which saved me some needy creativity in the spur of the moment, which I did not have at that time. Uh, The Jack O'Lantern, which is not a pumpkin. It's a weird humanoid psionic mushroom thing. (laughs) Uh, The Kelpie. The Mad Tom, which are amphibious demi-fae with catfish faces. The Mannequin, wooden constructs. They're animated by witches, which is cool. they serve served by witches. Witches are a very cool faction. We're going to be going over those in the campaign book walkthrough. Manticore, looking forward to seeing the Domo version of that. The Marsh Lantern. Are they undead? Yes, they are. Wretched souls who have drowned unconsecrated in marshy pools. The Murfon, pretty self-explanatory. Here is the Wamp, which I explained before. These are Leonine Demifei. They wander into your home, seeking an offer of a hot drink, and then they eat you, take over your house, and then grow huge inside. Very unique. I love them. Mosslings. Gotta love the Mosslings. You can play one of these if you want to, as detailed in the player's book. The Mold Oracle. These are Mosslings that are actually devoted wholly to the Dark gods of the underworld of roots, mold, and mycelia. Drugs, man. The musk boar and the nutcap. The ochre slime hulk. An ogre. Another one I'm looking forward to seeing. The onyx blob. Definitely looking forward to seeing what the artwork is going to be on that one. The paraton. I remember these from classic Dungeons & Dragons. The flying nasty deer eagle thingies. The Pook Morel, six inch tall humanoid mushrooms. They mess with your mind and project psychic horrors that make your dropped possessions actually look like they are animating. It's fantastic. Red Cap, classic uh, fairy creature. The Red Slob, the Root Thing. I believe that this Humanoid plant thing is something that a Mossling Knack may be able to actually summon and then have serve you. The Scarecrow. These are actually peddlers, and they're actually good guys. The last creature I wanted to delve deep into is this guy, the Scraby. I love these guys. So a little preface. When I was attempting to dolmond wood-eyes the Incandescent Grottos module, there was a section early on in one of the early caves of the Incandescent Grottos where there are kobolds that are mining crystals in a nearby cave. There is a chance, of course, for hostility, be them being kobolds, but kobolds don't really fit in Dolmanwood So I was like, what would be an interesting substitution for kobolds? And I thought, well, if they're mining, they're probably trying to sell the goods that they are mining. And I thought Scrabies would be perfect as a particularly unique creature to Dolmenwood, They are demi-fae and they are grubby, scrawny, and three to four feet tall. They are traders by nature with saggy, sallow skin, moonish eyes, needle teeth, and tap-like noses. This is what I love about them. They live in a labyrinth of tunnels beneath the roots of the forest. This is a fantastic entry for a unique fae creature that in this one-page spread gives you a full picture of what their society is like and enough fuel for the referee's imagination to extrapolate out all sorts of possibilities with this culture that lives in the roots directly beneath the ground and the fact that they are traitors actually adds a whole nother element to how parties could possibly interact with these creatures they could possibly show up anywhere their combat stats don't really matter that much unless your party are real jerks (laughs) Um, But uh, their role-playing stuff is important here. Their behavior is that they are shrewd, prudent, and excitable. And their speech is sniveling and whiny. Um, And the possessions here is the key one, trade goods. They have fairy goods, herbal goods, and mundane goods, See page whatever, which hasn't yet been finalized, but we're about to take a look at the trade goods charts in a moment. And that's what makes them such interesting encounters every time is what they possibly have on them. And plus, that and another feature, which we're about to go into. And you can see here that they have a substantial horde in their lair if you really want to try to steal from them or bargain with them, perhaps. Um, they have level 11 magic. Uh, cold Iron, so they do. Suffer, they are demi-face, so they suffer extra damage from Cold Iron. Um, and they can turn into a worm. This is one of the interesting, fun things. Is In a pinch, they don't like to do it. I love that little parentheses there. They find it distasteful to do it. That says so much about them. Scrabies can transform into a long, a five foot long, one-inch thin gray worm with their with their face at the tail end. That is horrifying. It's almost body horror right there. The transformation takes one round during which the Scrabie can do nothing else. And when in this form, they are able to dive into the earth and burrow away at their normal speed. So if any sort of hostility breaks out, they can just get, get away, pretty much. No problem. best part about Scrabies, the nose beverage. This is peak whimsy. This may not be for everybody. I love it. I love the fact that there is body horror mixed with extreme whimsy. So you have the opposite ends of the spectrum, similar to the Cobbin, right? Where you have the cute whimsy combined with the dark nature of their being under tyrannical rule. Here you have something similar. Each scrapie can pour a particular liquid from its tap like nose at will up to one pint per hour. Despite their questionable origin, these liquids are quite. Delicious. The bestowing of a nose beverage is a gesture of friendship, sometimes performed when sealing an especially satisfying deal. That automatically sets up a really comical and fun and memorable encounter. Assuming that you're encountering this gravy and that some sort of talk of trade is going to be included. The fact that the player characters at first don't even understand what is about to happen when they conclude the deal. They probably thought they got something really cool or paid for something interesting. And then all of a sudden the scraby just lets loose with a glass underneath its nose and shoots out a beverage that it expects the PCs to drink is just an amazing ser- scenario that you can just imagine what the results might be, right? The unique table for the scrabies is nose beverages. You never thought that you would see a table in any role-playing game for nose beverages, but yet here we are. Nose beverages, they can produce, you can roll this randomly, I certainly did, birch sap. Burdock juice. I don't even know what a burdock is. Cheap wine, cloudy cider, exquisite mead, frothy ale, ginger beer, honey water, iced tea, mint water, sparkling peri, and tart lemonade. I don't think I need to say anything more. That's just pure creativity. Traits. Particular scrabies can have these following traits. They one wears a quizzical wooden mask. One smokes green mogul moss in a long clay pipe. That is a unique pipe weed that she is fully detailed. Once again, in a two page spread in the player's book, all sorts of different uh, pipeweed. weed. Uh, listening to mercantile negotiations through an ivory horn. It's fantastic. You know, visual a braided beard down to its knees. It calls strangers, palanquin and friends sponty whiff. completely random. And I think that's the point telescopic fingers that can unfurl up to three inches long. So let's look at some of the encounters where we can find these guys. Lying listless by the roadside, drunk on mushroom ale, their wares strewn behind them. They drunkenly barter with passersby, offering ludicrous or fictional goods, for example, mooncats, king's jowl for mermaids' toes or sagacious mares, Uh, feverishly repairing a section of tunnel exposed due to a cave-in. Passersby may be enlisted to help if willing to work in exchange for a gift. Call to action. Slyly peeking out from a hole at the base of a tree, negotiating a deal with an irascible drune cottager carrying jars of pickled organs and painted eggs. The introduction, once again, of the Druun. You can see how important that faction is to this setting. Perched atop a sled, packed with goods, wildly lashing the boars which drag it, frantically trying to evade the crashing footsteps of a gelatinous hulk in pursuit. So of course you're going to help the crabby, right? And the lairs in which you can find them, cramped stores, pantries, libraries, bedchambers, and smoking parlors in the hollow trunk of a mighty tree accessible via a tunnel through the tree's roots. It might be a little homage to the Hole in the Oak module by Gavin. A stone trap door in the forest floor leads to a chilly subterranean warehouse full of barrels and crates. A stove and mounds of blankets are the only home comforts. It's kind of sad. Two inch wide clay pipes lead to narrow ledges, stores, resting places at different levels of a bottomless underground shaft. Ever more absurd creatures dwell deeper down. A little prompt for an adventure perhaps. Perhaps a little dungeon drawing might be required. And a cavern pool. The Scrabies hide their goods in casks at the bottom of the pool, extracted by hooked poles. They also sleep in the water. One stays above the surface on guard and draws the others out when they awake. So a nice little spin, a little right turn, and what you might possibly think about how scrabies actually live. Very unique environment. And those are the scrabies. A great example, similar to the cabin, about how not all of these things are meant to be fought. They are meant to provide interesting role-playing opportunities, which is true for almost all of these creatures, even your vicious evil crookhorns always have the chance to actually negotiate and it's in the description itself that prompt for a possible alternative to combat which should always be on the table when it comes to old school role playing because combat is so deadly and finishing up what the best jury has to offer we have the shadow the shape stealer that should be interesting i'm wondering if that's sort of a doppelganger sort of thing, a skeleton. I'm gonna love to see the version, the Domo version of that. Giant mutant snail, and then even better, the giant psionic snail. The specter. Sprites are super fun in the incandescent grottos. I substituted these for, I believe they were like interesting little cute monkeys, but I ended up using sprites instead. It's the very first encounter you can have in the grottos. And I use these little guys to everyone's dismay because they are little bastards. Um, and each of their colors they can each have their own little prank that they can pull they're great and each one has like their own name too so they're not just black sprites they're known as gully gups purple sprites or model cops right lots of interesting flavorful stuff here and you can see that i think this is one of the very few that actually has a uh, two-page spread talking animals different than cobbins this confused me at first a while back when i first encountered these But these are just normal animals that have been charmed with the gift of speech. So they are different than cobbins. Trio which I believe are the treants of the setting. Yes. Trolls are great. Um, They are highly unique. They do have the regenerative properties of classic trolls, but they also have an association with moss. So that is what they crave above all else. And their danger to civilized folk is that they have a... Preference for the moss that grows on corpses, which is why they would like to kill you. Corrupt unicorns, gotta love it. Pure unicorns, werewolves, wicker giant, the whites, the witches, highly unique. These are not the witches that you are probably thinking about. We'll go into more depth with them and each one of their patron wood gods. When we delve into the campaign book. Uh, the Witch Owl. The Wood Woes. I think I'm saying that right. The Wood Gru. We can play one of these guys. A Wrong Uncle. These are these are kind of weird. I love them though. Um, they're, so they're toadstools. They grow on a arcane infused corpse basically. Like a lay infused corpse. And then they basically osmosize the voices and habits of that dead person. And I think then they go and try to return to the life of that. The person led. Let me just take a look here. Yearning for home, a yearning to return to the home of their deceased host compels wrong uncles to wander, picking up basic traveling gear and seeking the companionship of other travelers along the way. That is both sad and endearing and horrifying at the same time. Now here's the kick, which turns it into full on horror. Returning home, if a wrong uncle finds its way back home, it is compelled to murder its former loved ones. This last tragic deed accomplished the toadstool explodes in a cloud of spores that drift along the winds until they settle on a new host. Whew, that is something else. Then the largest entry of the best bestiary is the worms. We have a full page spread here that gives you an overview of all of them. And interestingly, here we have vulnerabilities. I love this. So yes, they are the most powerful creatures in the setting as written, but they do each have a vulnerability that is up for the referee to decide. And you can roll on this random chart, which are all interesting, flavorful, setting-infused, vulnerability so it's not necessarily that you just need like a plus three weapon or dragon slayer sword instead we have things like exposure to daylight the presence of a pure hearted virgin classic fairy tale sort of stuff there the stench of rotting fish this is uh, number seven is my favorite atheist philosophy love it that's their vulnerability interesting is the Dolmanwood version of Dragons, worms as they're known, as I described before at the beginning of the bestiary, they are limbless and wingless, so they are more serpentine than anything else, and they are categorized according to the four bodily humors from early medicine. So we have black bile, blood, phlegm, and then yellow bile. Each are highly unique. Culminating in the yellow bile worm right here. And we can see looks to be a drone petitioning it as well. Probably going to be a very dead drone in a moment. And lastly, the will These are uh, flying demiphae, sort of like humanoid caterpillar moth creatures. And I believe they are associated with the cold prince, yes, in the origin they are the devolved descendants of the cold prince moth-faced wardrobe guards a small number of whom lingered in dolmanwood following his banishment into fairy so i thought that before we dive into the appendices and finish up this second part of the dolmanwood deep dive that it might be helpful to show how a referee would go through the procedure of actually determining the chances of a random encounter, then having that encounter manifest in choosing the monster and then referencing the book. Like what, how does that actually look in play? And this is how I did it in both of my games using the PDFs. So first, let's switch over to the map real quick. Once again, players look away. Spoilers involved heavily. And let's focus on, let's see, Hag's Addle here, which is the swampy area dominated by the lower Hammoth River and ruled over by the hag Um, and that seems like a very dangerous place with lots of nasty monsters so let's pick one hex at random we will go with 1008 which is this hex right here all right so we determined that the player characters have moved into this hex when they move into the hex we're going to check first to see what The chances are for getting lost, which is also doubles as the same chances for random encounters. So I'm going to refer to hex 1008 in the campaign book. Here is another preview of the campaign book for you and let's go into hex 1008 right so if you look on the right page spread here we have the flotsam pools so this gives us all the information we need we're going to go into more detail about this in the campaign book preview but this is just to show you how a monster could be generated randomly we have the indication here that it is This terrain is swamp. That is key to note because that determines what possible chart we might roll on the random encounters. The chance for encounters in three in six, that is a high likelihood. That is a 50% chance. Daytime encounters are one in six likely to be with a specific NPC, which is detailed here in the hex description. We're going to ignore that for now and just assume that that is not the case. So point being is we're taking we're taking a look at two Notations immediately upon looking at this hex description. One, it is a swamp. Two, the chance for encounters is three and six. That's all we need to know for right now. All right. So they're wandering around the hex looking for secrets, which are all detailed detailed here in the hex description. And the referee secretly rolls four encounters. And let's say he rolls a two on the D6 that triggers an encounter. All right. So then we are going to go into the encounter section of the campaign book which is right here and we have these lovely lovely encounter tables so the first thing you're going to do is we're going to roll a d8 to see what kind of encounter it is so why don't we do that we'll head right over here and we will roll a d8 and we got a six a six on this chart. So it is daytime. They are not on a road or track. Notice how it's different if they are on the, the safety of a road or track. There is none of that in the Haggzaddle. It is swampy, dangerous land. So we look at wild daytime. We rolled a six. We're going to go to the regional chart. Okay. The regional charts are over here on this page. This is great. So we're going to look for what region of Dolmanwood are we in? We are in hags at and you can see that there is actually a chart specifically for that region so you roll a d20 to determine what we encounter and let's switch back over to my dice roller rolling a d20 i got a 12 and that is going to yield a musk boar. 1d6 of them so i can immediately make that roll real quick three musk bores okay so then we head over to the monster book and I can go right over to the table of contents, find must hyperlink over to it. And here we are. What we would do first is we would actually determine how many there are. Three. We then we roll 33% chance in lair. So let's check that out real quick. Oh, is it chance? That's a 30? 37. Okay. So not going to be in lair. All right. So these are encountered wandering in the wild. Then we can look at encounters. So I don't really have an idea. So we're in the swamp. We're in Hag's Addle. They're going to run into three must spores, But what are the must spores doing besides just randomly running through the woods and looking for PCs to kill and roll initiative and blah, 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 right? Boring. Let's look. Encounters. Browsing on a series of fecund, multi-hued moss mounds lined up beside a ditch-like barrow, a troll approaches cautiously, angered at the defilement of its moss guard. I don't need to read any further. I love it. It also adds an additional danger of a troll that's approaching and allows uh, and provides a dilemma for the player characters to make dis- active decisions about. So then you could just roll right into the encounter by giving the description that you see right at the top here, per- perhaps telegraphing the stench that they pr- prob- probably smell first they may actually hear the troll approaching first and notice the troll and then look to see what it appears to be hunting and then see the musk boar munching on the moss mounds right you have this resource that both creatures want both the troll and the moor want the moss how are the PCs going to involve themselves or are they at all and already you have an interesting little story about to develop and you didn't have to do any thinking you just rolled some dice and it's fantastic and this is how it works every time the PCs are moving between hexes, good, good stuff. So that gives you an example of how the game can sort of flow with this hex crawl and how you can generate random counters on the fly. All right, let's move down and finish up with the appendices. So the appendices are loaded with actionable, useful information that you're going to be using and referencing constantly in your game. I wish that all other bestiaries had information like this so easily referenced and parsed. So, first off, we have normal humans. Might seem boring, not these guys. They're, you are constantly interacting with humans all the time. And frankly, for my money, I often find that normal humans and the other sentient kindreds of Dolmenwood. And lead to far more interesting adventures than a lot of the crazier, more whimsical creatures do. And so, you need to be able to have something to grab onto at a moment's notice whenever your players encounter a random person, which happens all the time. We all know the stereotype of a PC wandering in town, say, like I, I look for the nearest person. Who is it? What does this person look like? What is their name? Well, you're going to have this information right here for you. First of all, you have a normal human with its basic stat block as your as your baseline. You don't really need to know anything more than that when it comes to combat statistics. Then it gives you basic details with an optional table that you can just roll really, really quickly by rolling the major dice of D4, D6, D8, and D10 all at once, and you can just get a very quick description of a person, and that may be all you need. However, Gavin gives you a full series of the most common occupations or types of people that you might encounter in the woods and towns. So here are the anglers that we referred to be before, fisher folk, town criers, fortune tellers, lost souls. This is actually a common one that you will, a common random encounter that you will find on the roads or in the forests of Dolman Wood is just someone who just got lost um, merchants, peddlers, pilgrims, priests, villagers, right? So this is fantastic because most of them have some sort of interesting chart to roll on. So let's look at the priest, for instance. Pre- every priest is always the same, right? In every game, it just depends. Like what makes them difference is the God that they worship, right? Well, that's not the case in Dolmenwood, where the major religion is the Pluritine Church, which is a monotheistic religion. So how do you differentiate priests? Here, we can just roll on a D twelve and you can find out that, oh, this priest is an evangelist. This priest is a tithe collector. This place is a lich word that says so much about the priest, just with this simple word, the lost souls. You can find out their fate, first of all. Rolling a six, they had been wandering in fairy for two D one hundred years, a Rip Van Winkle sort of story, right? And then you can roll on where their home actually is. This is a seed for adventure. So you can roll randomly, regardless of where you find them. And if I come up with a one on a D10 and I roll Castle Brackenwald. But what happens if I find this Lost Soul randomly in the northwestern corner of Dolmenwood? Then it becomes a question of how are you going to get this person back home? Is it worth their while? What are they going to give you as a reward for bringing you home? Then we have a really useful one. Now, a lot of this stuff you can see is labeled to do, but these are typical adventurers. And this is great because for each one of the nine classes, available to play in the game. Gavin gives you a first level, a third level, and a fifth level version of these classes, which is really, really useful. You can't make the assumption that the player characters are the only adventurers marching around Dolmanwood. They're going to encounter other people like them. And when you need one quickly, here you go. And then we have adventuring parties. Once again, you are not the only adventurers in town. Sometimes you're going to roll randomly that there is a party that shows up. And that's a very difficult thing to come up with on the fly is what that adventuring party consists of. like What, what are they made up of? And it has a full system here for actually determining what kind of kid in class they are, what their alignment is and um, a whole sequence of determining their equipment and everything. And, and lastly, he actually gives you random charts for determining what their quest is, like what they happen to be doing, what are, what are, they, what are, their, what are their goals. And these are based upon the overall party's alignment. So are the good guys, bad guys, or... I guess opportunistic guys would be the word to describe neutral. Let's pick a chaotic. Let's pick a, a, a rival adventuring party or nasty folk. They want to assassinate or kidnap a lawful NPCs, and then Kevin gives examples of actual NPCs, where they are and in what hex. I would think that 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 these hexes will probably be hyperlinked for quick reference should you need to. Um, so very very useful in a pinch. Then we have a large section here where they are normal animals. So these are the mundane animals and their giant cousins, which are commonly encountered in the wood. So he points out immediately in the first paragraph here that they are the mundane to the gigantic to the magical that Rome Dolman would. So there are some fantastical ones here, but they are all versions of animals in some way, shape, or form. Many of these, even though they are common to what we know in the real world, usually have one line or two that ties them a little bit more into the setting. So let's look at the giant ant, for example, that normally this would be sort of a boring encounter, right? Like if I rolled this in the random encounter chart, I'd probably skip over and look for something that was more dolmo-specific, but let's look a little bit deeper here. Here's the line right here. Known to mine veins of crystal beneath ley lines. That is very setting-specific, very evocative, ties them immediately to the Woods setting um, and makes them stand out from a generic stat block, right? Let's take a look here. The false unicorn is a fantastic one here. These are actually white fur deer, but then they have a single horn in the center of their forehead, so they look like unicorns. And They are gamey and have reasonably tasty flesh, so they are actually hunted and used for food. Great thing here is the stench. Close up, within 60 feet, the stench of their habitual flatulence is highly distinctive. So this is the point at which the entrancement of encountering a beautiful, pure unicorn dies away on the vine and is replaced by a flatulent deer. So there you go. Example of the whimsy and humor. Once again, there's your gelatinous ape. We have the owl bear, nests in caves and hollow trees. We have the shaggy mammoth, Greenford mammoths that they roam at twilight foraging for night fruits, and we have uh, the trottling. This is a rather disturbing animal. Naked miniature pigs, pinkish brown skin, but they have the face of petulant toddlers. It gets big nope from me. Nope, nope, nope. Don't like it at all. Automatically horrified. Even more horrifying, Faces of petulant totters, yet their flesh is delectable when roasted, though incredibly greasy. Really gross. All oh, right, as promised, the trade goods spread. How many times have your players interacted with a peddler and you just default to the normal adventuring gear chart to determine what they carry? I'm guilty of it myself. Here we have four highly unique tables of differing goods that are all highly evocative and creative that will delight your players whenever they trade for these items and can possibly lead to further adventures and more interaction and immersion with the setting itself. If the creature's stat block indicates that their horde or their possessions includes trade goods, dive into this because your players will love it. Scrabies, baby. Scrabies. That's what you're going for here. You have... Fairy trade goods, mundane trade goods, and even these are more interesting than your average adventuring equipment. Herbal trade goods and occult trade goods. So, just uh, we're not going to go through all of them here, but just an example of how creative it can be. Let's take a look at some of the fairy trade goods. Bottled light, dawn light decanted into stoppered bottles of dark crystal, and if unstoppered, it casts an amber light in a 30 foot radius for six turns, may be sealed and reopened multiple times. Monsters affected by sunlight are vulnerable to bottled light. Great stuff. Obviously doubles as a torch substitute, but much more magical. Uh, Let's pick another one at random here. Frozen Birdsong. Flakes of glittering hoarfrost stored in glass bottles swaddled in thick felt. If it's thawed, the melting flakes release a wondrous torrent of birdsong, as if a chorus of nightingales, blackbirds, thrushes, and finches were greeting the dawn. Song echoes around for 1d6 turns before fading. If enchanted music, for example, the abilities of a minstrel or woodgrew, is played in conjunction with a bird song, targets suffer a minus two penalty to any saving throws. mechanical effect that is directly tied to a kindred or class's abilities. Amazing. Then, near the end here, we have monster rumors. Oh my gosh. It's the gift that keeps on giving, really. So, for each one of the monsters in the book, and I believe these are the, yes, these are the 87 ones in the bestiary They have a chart of four different rumors that player characters may have heard about the monsters. So what's fun about these is that two of the rumors are true and two of them are false. I believe that is the case for all of them. Yes, yes. The first two are true and the last two are false. So let's look at one of the guys that we looked at already today. Let's take a look at the Crookhorn. Crookhorn, true rumors. The marauding foot soldier of the Naglord. Yep, true. Infect others with nasty diseases and parasites. We know that from the stat block overlook. False ones, they're terrified of fairies or they can invoke the wicked magic of their evil gods, both of which are false. These are great false rumors because if they're terrified of fairies, if you have an elf player character in the party, they may think that they have a significant advantage wandering into an encounter with Crookhorns and then they would find out much to their dismay that that was a false rumor. And this is for every single one of the monsters. Look at this, amazing. Goes on and on and on. Then we have a section here that is unfinished for creating monsters. I love it. I'm really looking forward to seeing what this system is here. Uh, we have how to determine what the XP value should be for monsters of varying levels and what their projected attack and save value should be, depending on their level as well. And then I'm sure we're going to have some good guidelines about how to create your own monsters for Dolman Wood. And then we have the credits. And that'll about do it for part two of 3D6 Down the Lines Deep Dive into the upcoming Dolman Wood Tabletop Role Playing Game by Necrotic Gnome and Exalted Funeral. Currently, as of this taping in the midst of its Kickstarter run, please go to the link provided in the description below to that Kickstarter page and pledge. I was telling a commenter on our first video that I am not naturally a person that likes to guarantee anything because I understand that I have biases. But I can say with confidence, having run two detailed long campaigns in this setting using these rules that you are going to be getting your money's worth with the Dolman playing Game, it is going to be a game changer in every sense of the word. All that said, thank you so much for watching this video. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the monster book of the upcoming Dolman tabletop role playing Game. And if you enjoyed it, Please don't forget to like and subscribe to 3D6 Down the Line, and please check out our actual play videos, one set in Dolman Wood and the other set in the Halls of Arden Vool Mega Dungeon, which is our ongoing campaign at the moment. And definitely keep an eye out for part three and the last of this series of Dolman Wood Deep Dives detailing the campaign book, which should be a great time. And until that time, everyone have a great night, and we will see you later. Bye now.